Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of our podcast, Is Breakfast Included? How you guys doing? Good? That's great. Today on the show, I sit down with my good friend, Al Marks. Now, Al is former artist development with AM Records. He was with AM for several years. He also holds these charity auctions for guitar picks and concert memorabilia, which he donates 100% of those proceeds to charity. He also told me this interesting story about ending up in a studio with Jimi Hendrix and recording some songs that were later released posthumously on various albums of of Jimmy's. Um, It's a great story. I wouldn't do it justice if I even tried to tell you, but I'm going to let him tell you right now. Let's check it out. All right. Tell everyone who you are. Hi, my name is Al Marks. I live in the wonderful state of Georgia in Atlanta, and I've been in the music business since 1956. 1956. So you're a, you're a, a young guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I say, I, I say 50, 1956 because uh, um, I lived in Ohio, and my dad died when I was like six years old, and my mom moved to California. And she moved across the hallway from a guy who was the assistant director for my three sons and Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and all the, you know, all those Saturday morning cowboy shows. Yeah. He was the assistant director. So he like, he had a daughter my age. So he would take me to all the, like, like he was friends with, uh, um, managers like Sidney Seidenberg, the guy who managed BB King. You know, he was really good friends with him. He was friends with the guys who managed Chuck Berry. And like whenever those guys would come to Los Angeles, he would take me and my mom and his daughter and we'd go see them. Wow. And I was like six years old, seven years old, you know, and I would be going, I'd be sitting downstairs in in, in the area where B.B. King was rehearsing with this whole band and everybody would be like smoking and, and, you know, it's just like he'd come over to me and he'd say, hey, little man, what do you want to do when you get older? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea I'll play baseball, you know? <laughs> and then I saw him play. I went, I went up, you know, the first time, sat on the side of the stage because we were at a black nightclub, so we really couldn't sit in the audience. We sat on the side of the stage, and he just floored me. I had no idea that anybody, you know, I had no idea what a guitar player was mm-hmm. at that time. You know, all they had was Elvis, and I didn't like Elvis. Did so, that... Did uh did that kind of like curb your trajectory from wanting to be a baseball player? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, what really did was when I went and saw Chuck, like I saw I saw BB King, and he was just like, kind of you know, just like I didn't understand what it was he was doing, but I wanted to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And and we were downstairs in the dressing room after the show, and so he he basically takes his guitar and he puts it over me, and it's like goes to the floor, you know, because I'm like three foot two or something. <laughs> He's got this guitar and it hangs and it goes to the floor and he goes, yeah, you know, you're probably going to have to get a guitar. You're going to have to learn how to play a guitar that's more your size. And he said to the guy who took me, he said, Sid, get this kid a guitar. So two weeks later, I had a guitar. Oh, wow. And, and like the guy from, um, it was the TV, the TV network, Warner Brothers. Um, the guy from the Warner Brothers Orchestra, the guitar player, was my guitar teacher. And, you know, I, I started to learn how to play guitar. And like, uh, like three months later, I went and saw Chuck Berry. And after I saw Chuck Berry and after I saw him and met him, I said, that's it. I, I want to do this. 
This is what I want to do. How old were you when you met Chuck? Seven. Wow. You know, and everybody was going like, I wanted to play like, I wanted to play like he played. You know, I had this little, I had this little uh, Spanish guitar, you know, nylon string guitar. And like, he say, he basically says, he says, uh, I hear you've been taking guitar lessons. Sid, since you've been taking guitar lessons. I said, I have, I have. You know, like, yes, sir, I have. And he goes, all right, show me what you can play. So I showed him, I said, I know G, D, and A. And he starts laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you're going to be a guitar player. You got to learn more than G, D, and A, kid. He goes, the next time I run into you, and hopefully I will, you're going to have to play something for me. And I said, I just remember saying, okay, okay, Miss, okay, Mr. Barry. He says, don't call me Mr. Barry, call me Chuck. And I said, okay, Chuck. And then the next thing I know, I'm in the car on the way home and I fell asleep. I couldn't wait till the next day to tell all the kids at school what I did. And they all go, who's Chuck Berry? Who's <laughs> <laughs> going to school in Los Angeles? They go, who's Chuck Berry? Is he like Elvis? <laughs> no, he's not. It's nothing like Elvis. When, so, uh, so after that, did you ever meet him again? Well, yeah, later on I did, but I moved to, after, um, I lived in California for about three years and then we moved to New York and in, in New York, basically I didn't get along with my stepfather. Mm -hmm. So I left my house when I was like 14 and I moved to the village and this was like 1964, 1965 and everybody was in the village. I mean, like, Loving Spoonful, Mama Cass, Denny Doherty, all those guys. Wow. You know, they all lived, because they all lived in the Albert Hotel. They lived, they lived in the Albert Hotel or they lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And I was really good friends with Zal Yanofsky from Loving Spoonful, so I shared a room with him at the Albert Hotel. And I was working in the summer. I was working at the Carnegie Deli during the day, and I was, like, you know, playing, trying to play in a band at night. Mm -hmm. And, and... You know, like Zal would, uh, I would go watch the rehearsals for the Spoonful, you know, as they were putting the Spoonful together. And, you know, he would always tease me because I had, I always like, I like to play uh, the Stratocasters because they were easy. You yeah. could string them, you know, there was like, if, if you broke a string, it was easy to replace. And I wasn't a lead guitar player, I was a rhythm guitar player. So he used to tease me all the time. And he goes, man, when are you going to learn how to play lead? And I'm going, never, man. I can't. It's just not my thing. Can't do it. You know? Yeah. And he would go off on all these lead riffs and stuff like that. And I would go, there's no way I can do that. So I would settle with chords. And, and you know, it's not too bad to be able to play chords because Pete Townsend made a living out of doing that. So it was a good thing. Still making a living. Yeah. Out of playing <laughs> chords. Yeah. So, but what we used to do that was was the most fun was like in the in the summers, we used to sit in the uh, uh, Washington Square Park, and right near the arch, there yeah. were about six or seven of us. We would take acoustic guitars and we would be, we would play folk songs, you know, like of, of the day, like uh, Dylan and Joan Baez and Mimi Farina and and Eric Anderson and those guys, and. One day we're sitting there, there's like seven of us sitting in a circle and we're all playing folk songs. And this whole guy with a banjo walks up next. He says, hey, you mind if I sit in with you guys? And we said, uh, no, you know how to play folk songs? He goes, yeah, I know a few. And so we start playing. You know, we figured we'd start out like playing uh, 
uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary shit. Yeah. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to cuss. Peter, Paul, and Mary stuff. And, um, you know, like uh, um, New Christie Minstrels and things like that. And so we started playing a couple of Bob Dylan songs, and he knew them, and they sounded really cool on a banjo. So the fr- guy sitting next to me says, well, we're going to play this new song, and it's by the Birds, and you probably don't know it. And the guy says, oh, what's the name? He goes, turn, turn, turn. And he starts to laugh. And we said, he said, do you know that song? And he goes, yeah, I know it. He goes, how do you know it? And he goes, because I wrote it. <laughs> and he goes, and he said, we, we said, what do you mean? The Birds wrote that song. And he goes, no, sorry, I wrote that song. My name is Pete Seeger. And we said, holy. <laughs> we, I mean, Pete Seeger, he's a guy that wrote If I Had a Hammer, If yeah. I Wrote like, This Land Is Your Land. I mean, all the songs that we were playing, and he was just playing along. And then when he said, turn, 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 it was just like, oh, my God, we just embarrassed ourselves in front of Pete Seeger. I can't believe it. And he goes, let me tell, let me play it the way it's supposed to be played. So then he played it, and the guy, the guy had asked him, the guy that was talking about saying, um, you know, mentioned the song. He goes, well, you've got a good version, but I like the Birds version better. <laughs> so he says, so he says, uh, Seeger says, so he goes, well, I'm doing a show at Gertie's Folk City tonight, and any of you guys that want to come, I'll put your names on, on at the door. And we were like, you know, 15. We were too young. Yeah. So it's 16, and we couldn't get in. But we had, like, three of us had phony draft cards. You know, like back in those days, you had a draft card. Yeah. Sure you were 18, you could get in anywhere. So we went. And he had a table for us right up by the front, right by the stage. And... You know, you walk in and like everybody that you could possibly think of was was there because it was Pete Seeger. You know, you had you had like uh, Eric Anderson, you had Burl Ives, you had um, all these Eric, uh, uh, Dave Van Ronk, all these famous folk singers were there and they were all sitting there and he's doing his thing and we're sitting there really grooving on it and everything like that. And about midway through his show and he goes, you guys don't mind if I take a minute to tell a story, do you? And everybody in the audience said, no, no, tell a story, tell a story. Goes, well, this afternoon, I was walking through Washington Square Park, and I sat down next to these guys <laughs> that were playing guitar, and uh, everything was going along great. Matter of fact, they're sitting over there. Say hi to them. And everybody looked at us, and like we're embarrassed as hell. And uh, then it came to this one song that they wanted to play called Turn, Turn, Turn. And uh, that guy right over there, told me that the birds wrote it. And then when I told him that I wrote it, he goes, oh my God, you're Pete Seeger. <laughs> he said everybody in the club turned and started laughing at us. <laughs> and we got up and we bolted out of there so fast. If <laughs> we just left, it, we left our stuff on the tables and everything else. And I got to be really good friends with P.F. Sloan after that. He was the guy who wrote, um, Eva Destruction and a bunch of the grassroots songs. Uh-huh. And, and um, he invited me to go to Monterey Pop. And I went to Monterey Pop and I worked the festival. And, you know, then I came back to New York, went to Woodstock, came back after Woodstock and got married. And I was playing in the band. Um, I had a band called Valkyrie. And when I went to uh, D.C., I moved to D.C., I left the band Valkyrie and I was like living in the basement of uh, uh, the guitar player for the Cherry People. Mm-hmm. And they had an album on Heritage. 
and I was working as their tour manager. So like they all decided that they wanted to go to New York and get out of their record deal. So apparently uh, one of them, I think Chris, the guitar player called up to the office of heritage and said, we want to have a meeting with Jerry Ross because we want, you know, want to talk about our deal. So we all got in, we took the train up from Washington. We get to New York and we go to the office of heritage records. They were distributed by MGM and we get there and the secretary says, can I help you? He said, yeah, we're supposed to meet with Jerry Ross. And she said, Oh, you're the cherry people. And <laughs> he said, yeah, and we all said, yeah, we're cherry people. And she goes, well, Jerry's not going to see you. And we said, what? He said, he said he had a three, three thirty meeting with us. And he says, where's your managers? She says, well, we, we don't, what do you mean? Because Jerry doesn't deal with artists. He deals with managers. He's not going to see you until your managers come up. And if you think you're getting out of your contract, it's not going to happen. You owe us $30,000 for your album cover. Hmm. And we said, Oh, never mind." <laughs> and you know, like we didn't know what to do after that. We said like, so like we didn't have our managers were a guy named uh, Barry, Barry Oslander and Ron Hafkin. Mm-hmm. And we tried to, you know, Punky, Punky Meadows was in Cherry People. He was guy guitar player for Angel. Punky gets on the phone. He tries to call Barry and Barry won't take his call. So at that point, I think we fired the managers and we just like kind of left Heritage all by itself. We just not going to deal with this anymore and lost phone numbers and everything and never came after us. So everything went good, but we didn't have anything to do after the meeting. So we kicked around and we had, we heard that Steve Paul scene, which was Steve Paul was the manager. He managed uh, Rick Derringer and Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter. Mm-hmm. And he had a club called Steve Paul scene. And every Monday night it was jam night. So we didn't have, you know, we thought we were going to be staying over. So we had, we had a hotel room. But we weren't going to go back to it, so we just figured, well, fuck, we'll just go to the Steve Paul scene. So we went there, and we're sitting in there, and like, sure enough, Edgar Winter was in there, Johnny Winter was in there, Rick Derringer was up on stage, Robert Plant was there because they were just Led Zeppelin was just getting ready to start their first U.S. tour, and he was up on stage singing, and we tried to get Punky to go up, but Punky didn't want to go up. So we're sitting there, and the next thing we know. Jimi Hendrix walks in. Wow. He walks in with, with Billy Cox and a photographer named Willis Hogan. I didn't find out the photographer's name till later. But he walks in and sits down two tables away from us. So I said to the guys in the band, I said, hey, I met Hendrix at Woods at uh, Monterey Pop. I'm gonna go over and I'm gonna go over and talk to him. They go, You got to talk to him. Well, yeah, I'm gonna go over and talk to him. So I walked over to a table and I says, Hey man, you're Jimi Hendrix. And he goes, Hey man, I know who I am. <laughs> Never forget that. It was like embarrassed the hell out of me in like a heartbeat. You know, I said, no, man, I feel really stupid for saying that. And he goes, nah, don't worry about it. He goes, uh, do I know you? And I said, well, we met it. We met at Monterey pop. And he goes, well, I met a lot of people, man. I don't remember you. And I said, well, you remember being like outside the dressing room when you and Pete Townsend flipped to see who was going to go on first. And he goes, yeah, I do remember that. And I said, well, I was there. And he goes, you do. And you remember Townsend won. And I said, yep. So he goes, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I got my band with me and we just 
tried to get out of our record deal. And he goes, man, I hate record companies. And we said, he says, do you have a drummer? And I said, yeah, he's over there. And he goes, well, you want to record? I need a drummer. And I'm going in the studio tonight at like four o'clock in the morning. Can you be there? Can your drummer drum? And I'm going, yeah. And he goes, you didn't ask him. I said, I don't have to ask him. He's, he's going to be there. So he says, all right, meet me at the record plant at four, at the four o'clock. I'll be there four o'clock and we'll do some, we'll do some stuff. We'll cut some stuff. Cause he was recording with, uh, he didn't have Mitch Mitchell as his drummer at the time. Mitch wasn't there. So he needed a drummer and he had Billy Cox and Noel Redding had just gotten, they had, he was fired. Mm-hmm. So he had just gotten Billy Cox who was his friend who he used to play with, I think in the flames and they were in the army together. Mm-hmm. So we said to, uh, went back to the table and I said, Jimmy Hendrix wants us to come to the studio and record. And he said, yeah, we saw you talking to him. What, what were you saying? I said, well, I was just saying, I was telling him that I met him at Monterey and all this other stuff. And then, um, he asked us if we had a drummer and I said, yeah. And Rocky said, who me? And I said, yeah, you. And he goes, I'm going to play with Jimi Hendrix tonight. I'm going, yeah, you are. And hopefully the rest of us will too. And then Punky and Doug said, nah, I'm not going to the studio. You're not going to play with Jimi Hendrix. You know? So they went back to the hotel and Rocky, Chris, myself, and Jan Zukowski, who was our bass player, all, we went to the record plant at like when, when uh, Steve Paul scene closed, we walked to the record plant, which is a couple blocks away. And we got there and, uh, the guy at the front desk said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we're, we're the guys that, um, oh, you're supposed to be playing with Hendrix tonight. Yeah. He called and he told us that like six of you were coming, right? And I said, no, only four of us. So we went in. He says, yeah, go on in the studio. Like Gary Kelgren's in there. Gary was Hendrix's engineer along with he, um, Eddie Kramer was his main engineer, but Gary was the engineer who was working the session that night. Mm-hmm. And we get there, we get in there and Gary, Gary Kelgren says, so who's the drummer? And we point Rocky out and he goes, okay, go get, go set up on the drums. Cause when Jimmy comes in, he's going to want to go straight to work. So he goes, okay, which one of you guys plays guitar? And I said, well, I play guitar. And he goes, are you going to play with Jimmy? And I'm going, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not going to happen. He goes, he says, well, you got another guitar player? And I said, yeah, Chris, he plays. And he says, Chris, are you going to play? He goes, no, not going to happen. I'm not playing with Jimmy Hendrix. He goes, all right, well, you guys, Jimmy needs, he, the songs that we're going to do tonight need a lot of percussion. So there's a bunch of percussion stuff over there. There's uh, marimbas, not a marimba, there's a, uh, um, what do you call it, ocarinas mm-hmm. and, and maracas and triangles and, um, what do you call it? Tam, uh, tambourines. There was like a ton of, he says, you guys play percussion, figure it out. So we said, okay. So we sit and we're just goofing around everything like that on the dot, four o'clock on the dot, Jimmy walks in and he's got, um, Billy in tow and he's got this photographer who's like snapping pictures all over the place. And, um, he goes, Hey, you guys made it. You ready? And we said, yeah. And he goes, okay, who's going to do what? You know, who's going to play guitar? Nobody. You're playing. We're not playing guitar with you. He goes, all right, well, you're going to play percussion. You, I need you to play congas. I need you to play percussion. I need you to do this, do this. So he tells us what to do. And he, he says, I'm going to move my amps. And I said, well, let me move your amps for you so you don't mess your hands up or anything like that. He goes, no, 
I got a better idea. You go move my car. It's sitting in front of the studio because if it stays there, I'll get a ticket. <laughs> so I go out and I said, okay, no problem. Take his keys, go out. It's a silver Corvette. I close the door. He's got a cassette player. I'd never seen a cassette player in a car because they didn't have them at that time. Right? Mm-hmm. He's got one built into the dash. This is April 69. He's got one built into the dash. And he's got these tapes sitting on the seat. And, and they're labeled like one says Miles Davis. One says Carlos Santana. One says um, Stevie Wonder. So I put the Miles, picked up the Miles Davis one, turned the car on, put the cassette in. And it's him playing with Miles Davis. Just like jamming? With, yeah, he's jamming with Miles Davis. Oh. Right? And yeah. you can hear him because he's talking and he's saying, hey, Miles, you take your solo now. And, and like, I'm sitting there and, like, I close my eyes and I'm leaning my head back. All of a sudden, I hear this banging on the door, banging on the door, door of the car. And it's, and it's Hendrix. He goes, man, I thought you stole my car. What the fuck are you doing out here? I said, oh, man. So I just put the gas on, took the car in the parking lot. And he goes, I thought you ripped me off with my car, man. I said, I wouldn't do that, man, I swear. He said, what were you doing? I says, I was listening to that thing. Man, that thing you did with Miles Davis is amazing. He goes, yeah, nobody's supposed to hear that stuff. I said, well, then don't leave it on the seat in front of your car. Somebody will steal it. Like, maybe me. <laughs> and uh, so we go back in. And we start working on some songs and we did this room full of mirrors and he wanted to do an eight, an eight minute version of room full of mirrors. It had already been out on one of his other records, uh-huh. but, but he didn't like it. He wanted to do like an eight minute version of it. And we did that song 22 times because Rocky couldn't get the bass. He couldn't get the drums right. Your so drummer. We went on, yeah. He was the drummer, Rocky yeah. Isaac. He couldn't get the drums right. You know, every Jimmy would have to stop the song. We'd be four minutes into the song, and he'd stop the song, and then he would say, "Let's we'll start again. You can't get it right. I need you to do this. Just follow me. Don't try to be ahead of me. Follow me." And then Billy Cox went up and stood next to him. He goes, "Listen," he says, "Just follow me, okay? I'll t- I'll give you the cues because Jimmy and I've played this before." So we did it about another six or seven times, and at the end. The very last take was like, I think, take 23 or something like that. Um, Gary Kelgren goes over the talk, over the, over the, uh, pushes the button from control and he goes, that's a keeper. So we actually did that. Then we did a song called Drone Blues and we did a song called Crash Landing. And we did this. We started on a song called Hey There Gypsy Boy, but it turned into a, um, a song later on. I can't remember the name of it but it turned into another song. And it would, by the time we got done, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. We are in the studio for seven hours. And by that time, Punky and, and Doug had come to the studio and found us because we didn't come back to the hotel room. So we were gone all night. Yeah. So, so like they woke up and they came to the studio and they found us and we were, Hendricks gave each one of us a hundred bucks. And he said, can you guys come back? And we said, well, when? He goes, well, Thursday morning at 4 o'clock. So any normal person, when they say Thursday morning at 4 o'clock, you would think means like Wednesday night, 4 o'clock in the morning, Thursday. Yeah. Right? Well, so we came back Wednesday night, 4 o'clock in the morning. Guess what? He didn't have a session booked that night. He meant Thursday night, 4 o'clock in the morning. 
which was Friday morning. Friday morning, yeah. Right. So the guy, so we, we get there at like uh, two o'clock in the morning on like Wednesday night. And the guy at the record plant, he's like sitting at the desk and he goes, are you the guys that are supposed to be here for tomorrow night's session? And we said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, Jimmy thought he might've made a mistake. So he left, uh, uh, he left instructions. I got to find him around here somewhere, but you guys are welcome to crash on the floor if you want. So we slept on the floor. We woke up, Rocky and Punky were gone. And like, we woke up at like nine o'clock. There was a session that had just ended and it was, um, Johnny Carson's band. Uh-huh. With Doc Severinsen and um, uh, God, who is who is the drummer um, Ed Shaughnessy and Vinnie Bell and Tony Matola and like they were walking out and Vinnie Bell had the electric sitar with him and I asked him I said Wow man like that's that's like, are you you Vinnie Bell and he goes Yeah and he says I said Is that the electric sitar and he goes Yeah I said Did you make that and he goes Yeah I invented it. And he goes, damn. He says, what are you guys doing here? And I said, well, we were supposed to do a session with Jimi Hendrix, but apparently he's not going to be till tonight. So he goes, well, Hendrix wanted to try this out. Why don't I leave this with you? And I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Why don't you leave it with the guy in the office there? Because I don't want to be responsible for anything like yeah. that. So he, he gives it to the guy in the office. And, you know, we set off to... Uh, try to figure out what we were going to do for the rest of the day. Punky and Rocky were gone, and the guy had changed. The guy who was there, who let us sleep on the floor, he wasn't there anymore. So we didn't. He said, "Did you see where our, our friends went?" No, they weren't here when I got here. You guys were just sleeping on the floor. And the guy who was here earlier said, "Just let them sleep, and when they wake up, you know, everything's cool. They just have to come back here tomorrow night." So we get up. And we're looking for Rocky and Punky. They're nowhere to be found. No message, no nothing. And we wander around the city all day. I went back to the Carnegie Deli. So we sat there for a good, a good three hours. And then it was like six o'clock at night. We went back to the studio. And by that time, Punky and Rocky had come back. And they said, where were you guys? And we said, what do you mean? Where were you? And he goes, well, Jimmy got us a hotel room because he kind of thought that he messed up on the days. And, you know, Punky and I were in the hotel room. And he said, didn't the guy at the front desk tell you? We said, no. What do you mean? We left a message for the guy at the front desk when you guys woke up, because we didn't want to wake you, that he's supposed to tell you to go to this hotel. He's got a, Jimmy had a room for us. I said, you, you know, I can't say it because it's a podcast, but. You can, you know, actually, you can. I said, you son of a bitch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> You let us sleep on the floor. You're sleeping in a hotel room and order room service and everything. My God, what, what the hell? So we said, give us the key to the hotel room. So he gave us the key to the hotel room. And we all ran back to the, the four of us ran back to the hotel room. And uh, we took showers. We walked in and we said to the guy at the desk, we need 11 towels. <laughs> and the guy at the desk said, what? And we said, just we need 11 towels. He gave, him, he gave us the towels, and we went to the hotel. We went upstairs. We all took showers, and we went back, and we got back around 11 o'clock. And um, Hendrix came in early. He came in, like, at 2. Because apparently, Punky and Rocky had met up with him early in the day. Uh-huh. And they had, gone, they had gone over and sat with um They went to lunch together, and they had made arrangements to get there at, like, 2. So we got there at 11. Gary Kelgren was there. We did another 
we did another, we did a song called, um, we finished Room Full of Mirrors. We did another take on Room Full of Mirrors. We did Crash Landing again. We did Stone Free, a song called Stone Free again. We did, we did Drone Blues the night before. Oh, Bleeding Heart was the last one. So we actually wound up doing six tracks. Five of them have shown up on albums. Wow. Since then, because I, I met John McDermott later on in my career. Um, I met John McDermott and we talked about it. And he said, well, he says, I've got the tracks. I know where they are. I'll just put them on the next albums, you know, whenever they come up with a subsequent release. So they've all been released, which is kind of cool. Your versions, the versions that you're on? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're on, like, one of them is on um, People, Hell, and Angels, I think is the name of the album. Then I think there's one album called Valleys of Neptune. Mm-hmm. And then I think, uh, like, on the Hendrix box set, the big purple box set, the Room Full of Mirrors track is on there. And, like, in the, in the credits where they have, like, in the little booklet that comes with it, they said, two unidentified percussionists. <laughs> Because you know, they didn't know who we were. Yeah. And like they weren't going to go back and reprint the book. So they came out with that. That's how I That's how I told the story. Um, showed up on the internet. The one that you read from the Experience Hendricks magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John McDermott, the guy, he interviewed me for the magazine. And I basically told him the whole story. And he goes, you were there. I can't. He's, and I even told him the part about with, uh, the reason that there's no photographs from that session was that Willis Hogan, who was the photographer, got underneath Jimmy, who's like taking pictures from below where Jimmy was, where he was playing, uh-huh. and it annoyed him, so he kicked his camera and broke his camera. And his camera was a Hasselblad, <sighs> which was like very expensive camera back then. Mm-hmm. And it ruined all the film. So there's no film that exists except for, I, I went on somebody's webpage, um, about a month ago, and I found three pictures where I can make out Chris, my other guitar player, and Billy Cox and Jimmy, and there's another one with just Billy and Jimmy in it, and they were from that night. So there was two pictures that do exist. That you know of. Yeah, that I know of. Yeah. But um, I'd love to be able to find it. You know, I'd love to be able to find a picture of myself in that session to prove that I actually did it. Yeah, man, that's an amazing story. Did so how th- going into that second session? Were you still like, holy shit, we're we're recording, we're going to do a session with Hendrix? Yeah, it was just like somebody slapped me. We brought, yeah, I forgot to tell you, we brought a guy from the Unicorn Times, which was the um, uh, the weekly, like the Village Voice in New York. Uh huh. Okay, the Unicorn Times was the, like the Village Voice. And we brought a guy named Mike Burke up with us, okay? And Mike Burke was supposed to chronicle uh, chronicle, uh, our whole thing. Well, he got pissed off and he went back because, like, we went the wrong night. And we got, you know, he was supposed to be there to chronicle it so we could, like, tell people, yeah, we actually did it. But the only thing that happened was he took the train up with us and then he went back the next morning. He didn't stay for the session. (laughs) But... We did, we, we did, um, God, he, Jimmy, he was really an amazingly quiet, shy guy. 
he he wasn't he, he didn't really talk a lot he just played a lot you know yeah. and the thing the thing was is that like he it was funny because um punky was falling fell asleep behind one of the baffles in the studio yeah you know you've been in the studio you know yep. they have like baffles and stuff mm-hmm. punky fell asleep behind one of the baffles and um jimmy's singing he's doing like the lyrics for i think he's doing crash landing because it was about that song is about his girlfriend devin wilson who was this gorgeous black model and she was in the studio and he was singing about her how they were breaking up okay and yeah. she had no idea that that's what was going on and he was making up the lyrics as he was doing it and punky got up and he woke up and he came comes walking across the comes walking across the studio and hendrix flat out stops right in the middle and he goes, what the fuck? What are you doing? Punky. What kind of name is Punky? I remember that from earlier today. Get the hell out of here. Nobody's in the studio when I'm singing. And Punky just like tail between his legs runs into the studio. Everybody's busting out laughing. It was a great time. We had a great, we, we did record it from like two in the morning until, um, Probably, I would say, till like 11 again. Mm-hmm. But we did like a bunch. He did like Red House, you know, like uh, his version of Red House. He did Voodoo Chow. And he and Billy just did them. We didn't record them with him. He just played them. Wow. He did like 15-minute solos on like Voodoo Chow. And That's... just like, you know, so you just say to yourself, my God, you know, like, I'm, I'm like, this is... I'm dreaming here. Somebody's got to slap me because this isn't really happening. Yeah, I know. Cause J- Jimmy wasn't here long, but he would, in the time he was here, he was just like this enigma. Yeah. It was just like, you know, how did a, how did we get so lucky and B, you know, Holy crap, we did it. Yeah. And we got, you know, we remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. You wow. know, I remember what I was wearing, you know, and, and, um, so the, 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 he takes all of our names and he writes them all on the, on the, uh, the box. It's two inch tape. And cause he, he says, you guys are all members of the union, right? And we said, yeah. And he goes, okay. Yeah. Cause I could get in big trouble for recording because record plant was a union shop. You had to be a member of the union in order to record there. Uh-huh. So we were members of the union. So he took all of our names and he wrote it on the box. And like, never heard about it. I, we didn't hear about it again for years. So I run into him at, when I was at Woodstock. I was backstage and I'm like going to the artist tent and he and Billy Cox are sitting there with, um, Yorma Kokonen and Paul Kantner. And they're all sitting in the corner and they're smoking a joint. And I walk up to him and I say, Hey man, like, uh, I recorded with you in April at the record plant. And Jimmy goes, man, and he starts to shake his head again, and Billy goes, yeah, 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 you remember the guy who had the drummer who couldn't get his shit together. <laughs> and, and, and Jimmy looked at me, and he goes, yeah, man, here, have a hit. <laughs> because we have enjoying, and we sat and talked for like almost a half an hour, just like, just, you know, shooting the, shooting the bull, and <clears throat> he gets up, and like, he goes and goes off in the room to practice, and like, I go back to the van that I was sleeping in, we had, we had a Volkswagen van yeah. that I had gone up in and I was sleeping in that and I fell asleep. And the next thing I know, it's like seven o'clock in the morning and Hendrix is playing on Monday morning and the, and the place is virtually nobody's at Woodstock anymore. Like 50,000, 60,000 people were there. 
Wow. Place was almost all empty. And he's up there playing as he's, he's, he's got, he's got the band of gypsies this time with Larry Lee and, and, um, I can't remember the percussion player's name, Hunta something and Billy Cox and Mitch Mitchell and him. And they were called band of gypsies and they just like, they played their ass off to like nobody. It was amazing. That's crazy, man. You know, that's that's an amazing story, Al. It's well, it's yeah. It's just like to live that story, it's even more amazing because every time I listen to them, every time I listen to one of those tracks, I listen for my parts because I played like percussion, I played maracas, and I played uh, tambourine, and I played the ocarina, mm-hmm. and I played the, what's that one that goes, you know, with the with the stick yeah. on it? Yeah, it's it's got like a bunch of little bearings on it. Yeah, yeah. I played that. You know, because I would, so I'd listen to myself, I'd listen for myself and I'd go, yeah, and I close my eyes. This is pretty cool. So. When you listen you know, to it, it do you, are you in that room again? Yeah. I'm just like, I'm just like, well, I listened to it the other day on my stereo, my, in my living room. And I listened to Room Full of Mirrors. So I listened to all eight and a half minutes of it. And man, I tell you, by the time we got done doing that, my leg was so sore from hitting the leg with the tent, with the maraca, mm-hmm. with the maracas. You know, I had like a black and blue spot on my leg that was like almost six inches long, six inches wide. Wow. Couldn't move it. After all that stuff, you know, I got married and my wife said to me, she says, you can't be in a band anymore. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I'm not having you come home at three o'clock in the morning and sleep all day. You got to get a real job. So I said, oh man, what am I going to do? So I went to work for a record company. And, you know, They're I went in to New work York? Here. No, I was in Washington at the time. Oh, okay. I was living in D.C. And I went to work for this company called Waxy Maxis. And I met these people, guys that were called promotion men. And I didn't know what a promotion man was when I was in the record, you know, when I was in a band because I never knew what they did. Yeah. But these were the guys that got the records on the radio. So I said, wow, I think I want to do that. You know, because like, that's drive around all day, listen to music in your car. You know, go to a radio station, play a record for a disc jockey and see if you'll put it on and then get money. But it can get easier than that. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so I worked at Waxy Maxis until I got my bona fides and then I was I was hired by um Casablanca. And I worked for Casablanca for a year, then I worked for EMI America for a year, and then I worked for A and M. Went to work for A and M in seventy eight. And I left in 99. I worked there 21 years. Wow. So you saw a lot of great acts come through there. Amazing. My first, the first artist that I ever worked with was Supertramp. And then, uh, you know, I worked with like in 79, when Breakfast in America came out. And then right after them, it was Sticks. Then it was Peter Frampton. Then it was Joe Jackson, Squeeze. And these were all new acts, right? At the time? Yeah. Wow. Well, Frampton was huge. He was like yeah. really big, and Supertramp had five or six records. But like artists like Joan Armour Trading, and um, Joe Jackson's first album, the one where he did "Is She Really Going Out with Him," mm-hmm. and um, Squeeze, and uh, oh God, Stranglers, um, that whole the English beat, that whole era when Duran Duran was having all their hits. Okay, you know. 
I was I was, I was working all those artists that were like that, Simple Minds, OMD. Um, God, I can't think of all the different ones. Jeffrey Osborne, Janet Jackson, um, LTD, Brothers Johnson. Wow. I was working with all them. And then, like, uh, we got sold to Polygram in 1989, and I moved to Atlanta, and I became um, regional instead of local. I was working in a local market in Washington for, for like, 10 years. And anybody who came through Philadelphia, D.C., Virginia, Nor- Northern Virginia, Southern Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, I would go on the road with them. And we would do that. Well, I moved to Atlanta. I had a whole region. I had the Northeast. I had the uh, Southeast and the Southwest. So my territory was from Washington, D.C. to Colorado. So I spent a ton of time on the road. And that was in the I was in the early um, beginning in the 90s, like Blues Traveler. I went on the first Blues Traveler tour in the van. Johnny Lang. What, Crow. what would you do with these artists, you know, going out with them as a, as a promotions guy? What would you do with them being in the van with them? Well, like we would sit in the van and like we would basically go, we would always make sure like the local promotion guy in the marketplace would have, uh, would have an itinerary set up for us. Okay. Like I would, I would call each one of the promotion guys and say, okay, we're going to be driving from so-and-so to so-and-so. We're going to get in at three o'clock in the morning. We're going to sleep in the van We'll be ready to work at 10 in the morning. What do you got for us? Okay. And they would set up like interviews at radio stations or in stores or um, TV interviews or press interviews and stuff like that or sound check parties, you know, where you would go in there and you'd invite a bunch of radio geeks to the sound check. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they, the radio winners and stuff like that. Well, I would arrange all that. I would set, I would, work with the promotion guy and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I would come into town and I would go with the band to do that. And we would talk, you know, like I would give them pointers. Like when you get here, I've been to this radio station before. This guy likes this, this guy likes that. This guy doesn't like to talk about this kind of stuff. And, you know, he likes just straight answers. And like, you can, you can goof around with this guy. You can be funny. You can, this guy, you got to be totally straight with. And it was like, you know, you get to earn the trust. Yeah. And it was more so of a, like, you know, like, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever told an artist, man, I really love your stuff. You know? Yeah. Because I don't think they would have respected me if I had done that. Did you ever, uh, did you ever work with an artist who personally, but did you feel like, yeah, they're not gonna, they're not gonna make it. And then they surprised you and became huge. Um, or did you no, have like, wor- full faith in, in the bands that you worked with? I, well, I see, I trusted A&M. Mm-hmm. It was Herb Alpert's company. And he had like the guy who was the A&R guy. There was uh, a guy named Steve Robowski. And then there was another guy named David Anderley. And there was another guy, um, uh, uh, Jimmy Iovine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who later started Interscope. But these were all the A&R guys, and they were signing all these bands. So I, I figured, like, you know, there were certain bands that I thought were going to be bigger than they should, than they, than, than they actually wound up being, like Delamitri. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I love Delamitri. I mean, they're like the favorite. They're my favorite band that I ever worked with at A and M. They're just. I think I sent you some of their music. You did. You did. Yeah, and they just like they 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 were terrific. I mean, they wrote songs. I, I just like that was my biggest disappointment that they just never hit it big, because like they were just they still are. I mean, they just like Justin Curry writes some of the most amazing stuff that's you've ever heard. And, you know, nobody, nobody pays attention to us. Hmm. So, but there were a couple of disappointments, you know, I wish simple minds. I wish had gotten bigger than they actually were. Um, I was, I, I, I Johnny Lang was funny cause, um, the A&R guy, Larry Hamby and I, and, and the, uh, product manager, Beth Tallman flew to Cedar Fest in Minneapolis, um, in 1995, I think it was, or 96, to see this 15-year-old kid play blues. And, like, you know, we had heard that he was, like, the next thing, can be second coming of, like, you know, Howlin' Wolf. So we get there in Cedar Fest, and it's, like, this big outdoor festival in Minneapolis. And his kid comes on, like, everybody in his band is wearing a suit. And he comes on to like, you know, that kind of music, them da 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 like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like when they have like the show bands like James Brown and all those people. Well, they were all playing that. They would like play on music. And he comes on and he's wearing this, this suit and tie and no, no shoes. And he just, he, he rips this like blues lick that just like floors everybody. And he starts to sing and he sounds like a 50 year old black guy. Wow. And he's 15 years old, and I'm I'm sitting there punching Larry Hamby. I'm going, holy shit, Larry, this guy is a we got yeah sinus guy, and he goes, we're gonna do it tonight. So like we signed him that night, and he was he was he was my he was my real prize project at A and M because I worked with Beth on doing a marketing plan on him on how to get him out because he was only 15, yeah, and he couldn't play in bars and stuff. So we created a um, a tour for him at all the hard rock cafes because they were restaurants. So A&M paid for the stages to be put into each one of the hard rock cafes. And we did a whole cafe, whole around the country, hard rock cafe tour. And it was free. And he played and like, you know, kids, they, the families brought their kids and the only thing that we asked the, the Hard Rock Cafe was we could sell product. We asked them if we could sell the product and keep the money, and they said, yeah. Because we were packed. We were doing, you know, we had radio stations promoting the fact that this kid was going to be there. He's a 15-year-old guitar wizard, and, you know, we packed the place. All these young girls were loving him. And Yeah, yeah, he was a good-looking kid, man. Yeah, and by the time the tour was over... I mean, we had, uh, like, it was funny, the president of A&M, a guy named Al Caffaro, said to me, he says, like, uh, he says, how many should I make of this? And I said, man, I make like 150000 He goes, no blues records ever sold over 10000 I said, just do it. Just just do it. He goes, are you guaranteeing it? I said, yeah, okay. Do I have to guarantee it with my job? And he goes, yeah. He says, I said, okay, do it. So we hit 150000 we went over 150,000. We wound up at like almost a million. Was that and that was it, the Lie to Me album, right? Yeah, yeah. Lie to Me. Yep. 
and it's just like it opened he it opened the door for him. He got the opening slot on the Aerosmith tour, and and that when it went through Canada, mm-hmm. and then he got the opening slot on the Rolling Stones tour, and um, that was it from there. He became huge. He became like buddy guy, loved him, and BB King loved him, and he got it. He got invited to all those tours and. It was just like, that's a success story that you can say to yourself, I was there for the very beginning, and I lived through the whole thing. Right on, man. And it was great. It was like, you don't get those opportunities, you know, because there's everybody and their grandmother is, is like, involved. And, like, when you do something like that, you can just say, you know, that's my hand stamp. I did it. Yeah, yeah. I did it. You know? And Soundgarden was the same way. You know, Soundgarden was, like, those guys are, are were, like, family to me you know when we lost chris it was just like a it was like uh losing one of my family members wow so you had been with them since the beginning or since they got yep. the deal with a&m yeah since before even before that when there was sub pop wow like a friend of mine introduced me to chris and chris and i hit it off like he was like my younger brother if i was going to have a younger brother he would be like my younger brother Hmm. And we would talk like all over the years, like, you know, he would have problems. He would give me a call and he'd go, and I don't think the record company is doing this. I said, okay, what do you want to do? And, you know, we would, he would tell me what he wanted to see done. I'd just get it done. And did, did you, you know, have that kind of relationship with a lot of your artists? Like they would call you before they called, you know, someone yeah. else at the label? Yep. Well, you, you know, and I, you and I met, um, we, I saw on social media you were, you do these auctions, online auctions for charity. When you right. and I met, you were asking people to donate, and I donated some guitar picks, and then we struck up this friendship. Could you tell me a little bit more about this charity that you do? Yeah, well, but my wife died of cancer um, in 2011, and I had been collecting memorabilia for years. You know, like, it's, I just take it and stick it in a corner or whatever. You know, we'd make something and I'd stick it in a corner. And and I, I, I after she passed away, you know, I, I went into my study and I said, what am I going to do with all this junk? It's like, you know, what, what I, I, just, I don't want it. So a friend of mine says, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you do a memorabilia auction and donate the money to cancer? So I did. I mean, I had been collecting guitar picks from, geez, from like the 70s. So I did like these, um, I, I did before it was online, I used to go to record, um, you know, like record, um, record shows mm-hmm. where, you know, people, they bought like CDs you go, they rent a table and you, yeah. you like, yeah. So I would go there and I'd take all this memorabilia and I'd sell it at the record shows and I'd donate the money to cancer. And I did that until like, probably I want to say 20 what year did Chris Cornell die? He died like 2017, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. 2017. I was, I was donating, you know, I was getting guitar picks from all the, all the bands that I worked with. And, you know, by that time eBay had come on, you know, so I was able to put things up on eBay and sell them and donate the money. And I would donate, but like you had to pay commissions and all that stuff to eBay. You know, I had to pay like 10% commission and 10% to PayPal and, by the time you got done, you know, you had virtually nothing left. So I was looking for another way to do it. 
So I found this guy, David Craig, who's got this uh, concert memorabilia uh, group on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I got in contact with him and, you know, I asked him whether I could put a couple things up for auction because I wanted to donate the money to charity. And he said, yeah, so we tried it and it worked really well. And I didn't have to pay any fees and I was able to donate. I had I sold about $1,500 worth of stuff. And, you know, I donated it to cancer research. And then Chris died. I, had, I saw Chris in May, hmm. uh, May 3rd of the year he died. And I told him, I said, hey, listen, I'm doing this uh, guitar pick auction. Got any guitar picks you can give me? So he gives me a handful. He gets a guitar tech and he gives me like 30 picks. He says, you want those? And I said, yeah, I'll take them. You know, I'll put them in the auction. We'll see what happens. Well, 20 some days later, I get a phone call from Martin, who's their security guy. It's like four o'clock in the morning. Martin calls me and he says, are you sitting down? I says, I'm asleep, man. What do you mean am I sitting down? What do you, what do you want? He goes, Chris is dead. And I'm going, what? 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 What are you talking about? He says, Chris committed suicide. And I said, this is a joke, right? You're joking me. Four o'clock in the morning, you call me up. This is a joke. What one? Chris committed suicide. And I, 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 I happened to look over at the pics sitting next to me. And I said, oh, my God. I got I got this is what I got to do. I got to do this. I got to sell these pics in suicide prevention. So I went on to um, Facebook and I put them up in there's a group called Picnet. Mm -hmm. I put them up in Picnet and I sold them all for like 150 bucks a piece. And I raised like forty five hundred dollars. And I sent the check off to suicide prevention and every year from that point on i do three auctions a year i do one in april do one usually at the end of like uh, at the end of the summer and then i do one in october and i pick three i pick two charities usually one is cancer research which i still do for my wife and alan rogan who used to be the guitar tech for the who mm-hmm Cause he sent me like, he sent me like boxes of who picks and you know, like that was, he died of cancer. So I do all that. I do my cancer, um, donations for my wife and, and Alan and I do the suicide prevention for Chris and I've just started doing vets aid for Joe Walsh. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just finished the, 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 you sent me a bunch of picks from, um, Duran Duran and in the auction that I did those picks as well as some of the other picks that I had raised over $3,500 wow and I just sent off the checks I sent like a thousand bucks to each uh, um, each charity actually I sent like 1500 to suicide prevention but you know the majority of it went to suicide prevention then I went to cancer and then went to uh, vets aid yeah. So that's what I'm going to do from now on. Those those three charities. Well, that's I awesome. Start, yeah, I, I know you. I know you reached out to me, and um, you know, I I I don't know. I don't know how to sell picks or any of that. I do a lot of trading, but uh, when you told me what you were doing it for, I mean, there was really nothing 
that you could ask me for that I was going to gawk at. Whatever you needed, I you know, I'd send you um, because yeah, it is I mean, a good you, cause. You, you've done you've done amazing. I mean, like you know, I can't thank you enough. And you know, I'm getting ready to start collecting stuff. I had that one those one pick you sent me, the orange one that had the hole in it. Mm-hmm. It's it just like as soon as I put it up for auction, it's like it, it hit the bid. Oh, right on. <laughs> it's just like, it went crazy. So, you know, all the Duran Duran stuff went instantaneously. Well, cool, man. That's good to know. It's good to, to know that it's going someplace good. Yeah. Well, it's going to, I'm going to continue doing this. It's like, you know, I'm retired now and I don't, you know, I stay in touch with everybody and like I usually start calling people. I, I, the way you and I met was off of a thing called Bobnet. Yeah, on Bobnet. Yeah, which is which is a great tool for anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast, man. If you're in the music industry or associated with the music industry, get on Bobnet. It's a it's a it's a definite boon. He does tremendous work for everybody in the industry. Yeah, he does. He's a good dude too, Bob. He really is, and you know, like he's helped me immensely. So that's my story. Well, Al, man, I'm glad we crossed paths, and I'm sure we're going to actually really cross paths. As you say, we're going to share a meal. Um, yep. Uh, I, story. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. And, of course, you know, we're going to put every link on your on the social media part of this. We'll, we'll be in touch with you about that. But I, I have one more question for you. And I I almost forgot because I'm still kind of in the moment of the Hendrix stuff that happened. <laughs> but the, the the podcast is called Is Breakfast Included? And and if it was included, since we're talking about meals, what would you have? What would I have? I would have um, I'm vegetarian. I would have uh, for breakfast. Yes. I would have I would have a veggie burrito. <laughs> Nice. Yep. There's whenever I go to Nashville, there's a couple restaurants that are like really terrific. One is called uh, the Sunflower Seed, and the other one's called Gray's and G R A Z E. Uh-huh. And I go in there and like I order the veggie. You know, I walk in there and they see me and they say, "Okay, we know you want a veggie burrito." <laughs> you know, that's me. All right, on man. Well, brother, the one thing the one the thing that I forgot to mention to you was like. Um, uh, two years ago, was it, Latin? it was last year, I think it was, actually, um, the Hendrix picks that I made. Oh, that, yeah, that, you that sent, sent me a you. set. Yeah, you sent me a set. Yeah. Well, the, David Craig, we were talking about doing something about for for charity, for like, you know, could we get a band that, would, uh, that we could do? Because there's a guy over in England named Lee Hutchison. He has a thing called Pick Collectors for Cancer. Uh-huh. And what he does is he gets different bands to make special picks that he sells for cancer research. And like um, I had told David the story about Hendrix, and he goes, well, why don't you see if you can get the Hendrix family you make Hendrix picks? And I said, no, like Janie's really difficult about that. You know, like can't use Hendrix's image. You can't use his name. You can't use anything. And he goes, well, let's figure out a way that we can use the names of the songs. And I said, okay, that, that sounds good. We can use the names. Let's have a contest. And, you know, with some artists that are in the group, in this pick collectors group, mm-hmm. 
and we'll give you the names of the songs, and you create artwork that reflects the names of the songs. That way, I didn't have to clear it with the Hendricks Foundation so that I could use the names, because I didn't use the names of the songs. I put the picture to represent the names of the songs, like the one that, like, there's a pic that I sent you like that's got a bleeding heart on it. With yeah. The, it's all psychedelic. Well, that's for the song Bleeding Heart. And on the back of the pic, it says, the re, it says in, it doesn't say the name, but it has the letters BH, and it has 421 through 42469, the recording dates. That's what we did on each one of the picks. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw that, and I was... You know, I assumed that those were the dates that they were recorded. Yeah, and then, and the name of the song is just the letters; it's not the name. So if you if you compare, like the room full of mirrors is R F O M, and crash landing is C L, and drone blues is D B, and hey there gypsy boy is H H Y T G B. You know, that's the one with the palm on it. But we made those sets. We made Jimmy Dunlop made me 180 sets. Actually, made me 200 sets, and I sold 180 of them for twenty dollars a set for thirty six hundred dollars, and I donated it to cancer. Wow! And they all sold. Well, I was I was really uh, I appreciate the set you sent me. You know, they're kind of cool. Yeah, they're really cool. Like he said, David Craig's on me now. He says, "Well, let's let's make another one." I said, "No, nah, we did it once, man. I, 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 you know, I'm not pushing it. <laughs> you know, I'm not pushing it. I'm asking too many people for too many things. That's like you know, all of a sudden, like they get a phone call from me, and it's like you know, oh, he's going to ask me for something. Hey, man, you know? I th- I think the people that do help out don't care about that phone call. You know? Yeah. Well, they do help. I I get a lot of help. Yeah. I'm really I'm 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 thrilled. You know, it's just like every every time, like uh, Susan Silver manages Alice in Chains, and she used to manage Soundgarden, and uh, she and I have been talking, and uh, it's a sad story, but the bass player, uh, the tech, the bass tech for uh, Mike for Al- Inez. Yeah, for Alice passed away. Yeah, he had uh, pancreatic cancer, and he didn't know about it, and he found out at the very end. So I talked to Susan. And like they had a GoFundMe thing that they, there was a GoFundMe, but that's down now. But he sent me two picks by the band Tool. He used to be their bass tech, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how much they're worth, but I'm going to put them up for auction. I'm going to donate that money to cancer. Wow. So, you know. Well, brother, you're doing good work. We're trying, just you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. But if everybody just did a little bit, then a lot of shit would get done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, thank you so much. I'm glad we crossed paths. And like I said, I I know we're going to meet in person soon. I'm hoping so. (laughs) I'm I'm in Atlanta, man. Anytime Duran Duran comes to Atlanta or if you go on the road, give me a shout. I'll definitely hit you up, man. It was good talking to you, Al. You too, my friend. All right. Good luck tomorrow, by the way. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Al Marks. Great guy, huh? Very interesting uh, life that he lived there. I love the Pete Seeger story. Anyway, he's got a million of those stories. These are just a couple that he told on here. You can find him on Facebook at Al Marks, A-L-M-A-R-K-S. Give him a visit. Bid on some of his uh, auctions. Like I said, 100% of the proceeds go to any of those charities, or you can pick a charity that you want him to go to when you... uh, 
when you buy something or bid on it and win it. However auctions work, I'm really not sure. Anyway, guys, I'm done. Have a great day. We'll talk to you next week.